Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock episode number 30 for season 3, episode 4, An Obble for Karen. I'm your co-host, Chief Engineer, Ken Gagne. And I'm Captain Sabriel, and you know, Ken, I was having the weirdest dream. I was playing drums for Prince, and there were a dozen berets. Oh my gosh, that sounds awful. That sounds amazing. <laughs> I guess it depends on whether or not you were a rehearsed and practiced musician prepared for such an event. <laughs> Unfortunately, we are not. We are simply your friendly local neighborhood podcasters here to talk about Transporter Lock, which had some startling revelations and a lot of activity this week. We talked last week about how there were three plots in that episode. And this week, Bree, I think there were more like four plots. Oh, here, ultimately, I think it kept to the traditional A story, B story with a smattering of everything ended up relating to each other. I think perhaps there was an A plot and a B plot, and each of those had a B plot as well. Well, then let's examine it. Okay. Shall I do a TLDR? (laughs) Please do. You know, I was thinking, isn't it really more of a TLDW too long didn't watch? I suppose. Yeah. But it's, then you have to explain it every time. And given that Transporter Lock episodes tend to get longer and longer, maybe in our blog post on our website, we should do a TLDL, Too Long Didn't Listen. <laughs> and just keep getting shorter and shorter. That's right. Whoa, <laughs> now there's an idea. In the meantime, let's do a TLDR. Okay, let's see. I'll try. Shall I? Yeah, please do. All righty. So... The Discovery is pursuing Spock's shuttle due to data collected from number one, and they are held in place by a giant space sphere that is sending a virus to them, which breaks down all their universal translators. What's his name? Saru starts getting really sick to the point of nearly dying, and also engineering is shut off from the rest of the ship due to this electrical outage, which allows the mushroom spore thing to get out and possess Tilly. And eventually they discovered that, just like in many other Star Trek episodes, they just need to drop the shields and let the space sphere do its thing, and it dumps 100,000 years of its own memories, because the sphere is alive, into the ship's computers, thus releasing the ship, allowing it to continue pursuing Spock. And unfortunately, Tilly is still sort of possessed by the mushrooms, but on the bright side, Saru doesn't die, and in fact, he loses his threat ganglia. Phew. The end. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to this week's Transporter Lock. So, what would you like to talk about first, Captain? Uh, the only topic that needs to come up and ever be talked about is Jet Reno, how awesome she is. <laughs> <laughs> I, I sometimes keep forgetting her name. I was like, what is it? What is it? Janet Jackson? Janet Reno? <laughs> Jet. There we go. Okay. Jet yeah, Reno. this episode had a couple of characters who were introduced in the first episode of the season and then we're not seen again until this week, and they just suddenly pop up. And in both cases, everybody on the ship was like, who are you again? And she's like, oh, let me reintroduce myself. We got to see Linus, too. Is that the woman in the red shirt from the Enterprise? No, uh, Linus is the big, huge eye that sneezed on the science officer that died in the first season, first episode. That's right. So, yeah, that's another character from the first episode who is now back, except this time that character, who apparently has six sinus cavities, has a universal translator, and we can now understand him. He had a cold last week. It sucked. Oh, that poor guy. <laughs> I love that they go back to the more like colloquial uh, 
present day language. I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all, but I love it. It's hilarious. Right. You would think that such terms as it sucked would be a vernacular of the early 21st century, and yet here it is still in use hundreds of years later. (laughs) Same with our music. Right. And we'll get to that when we talk about Jet Reno, which you you apparently want to do. So why don't we start there down in engineering? Well, that's a little bit out of order, actually, now that I think about it. So the ship is going through space. It gets caught by the sphere. And the first thing we notice is this Tower of Babel effect. What did you think of that? (laughs) I love this. So the the universal translator is going haywire and everyone starts speaking different languages, hearing different languages and whatnot. I thought it was hilarious. So we finally get to see some more workings as a universal translator. Yeah, it was interesting that it seems based more on the sender than on the recipient because each person on the bridge was speaking their native language, but each person was being translated into a different language. So... Michael Burnham, for example, might be hearing 10 different languages, even though she understands only one. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was amazing and hilarious. <laughs> I just love when Saru comes to the bridge. And in, I think, like Italian, maybe we hear <laughs> Pike say, welcome to the Tower of Babel. <laughs> yeah, there were so many languages that it was impossible to identify them all, because not all of them were, of course, real world languages. Some of them were Klingon, for example. And at one point, I think Detmer was speaking Arabic or Aramaic. Yeah, she, well, she was she was like looking at her control panel, which is apparently a different language as well. <laughs> right. You know, this reminds me of a story arc in the Justice League of America comic book about 15 years ago, where Ross Al Ghul he starts off by changing all the languages that I think people can read, so that their visual receptors can no longer see language, and then he changes that people can't talk to each other anymore either. And that was just like this episode. That would have been a very effective attack had it been intentional. Uh, aphasia virus in D Space Nine right there. Yes, that's right. I remember that episode as well. One of the things I meant to do going into this episode of Transporter Lock was rewatch that scene of Discovery with subtitles on. Because often it says, speaking in English, speaking in Italian, for other shows at least. And I'm wondering what it would have said for this episode. I'm pretty sure it didn't change anything at all. Whenever there's like Klingon speak... Uh, and subtitled, it doesn't show up anything at all. So I'm guessing that's the same thing here. Huh. Still, I would think that that would lose something because it was very important to the scene that the viewer understand that nobody could understand each other. I can look it up right now. Speaking Klingon, speaking Andorian, speaking Norwegian, speaking German. Yeah, it's right over the text. Actually, it's kind of, uh, depending on where, how you're watching, it kind of covers text. Oh, no, no, because I just paused. But uh, yeah, it says speaking Italian, speaking this, speaking that. Speaking Welsh. Oh, so we actually do know which languages are being spoken if we have the subtitles turned on. Oh, that's fascinating. I really wish I had gone back and done that now. Thank you for looking that up. And when Saru fixes it, it's because of something he mentioned in a previous episode. He actually did say to Tilly in the sickbay that he had learned over 90 languages. Yeah, it came up almost immediately. (laughs) So I guess it wasn't too much foreshadowing, but still it was nice that this wasn't just on they pulled out of thin air. Right. And I I got a kick out of him snarkily saying to everyone on the bridge, like, am I the only one who bothered to learn a foreign language? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I imagine the incentive to do so is dramatically minimized once the universal translator was invented. Yeah, if you're not not a comms officer, I suppose there's not much reason to. I mean, back on Star Trek Enterprise, we had Hoshi Sato, who learned a lot of languages and was very fluent with foreign tongues, because the universal translator was untested and unproven, and there were a lot of scenarios in which it wouldn't work. We don't really have those scenarios anymore, just 100 years later. Yeah, so I think it was a nice, fun little touch. And we get to learn more about Saru. We learned a lot about Saru in this week. You want to talk about that? Yeah. Um, 
Well, I mean, he was getting sicker and sicker and got, you know, it's, this is supposed to be emotional, some big thing. I felt nothing. <laughs> oh, no. Why are you so cold and heartless? She thought he was dying, and I just didn't believe it. All I could think of was, all right, how are they going to get through this? I didn't believe he, they were going to kill off his character, so it, it didn't affect me. The first time I watched the episode, I found myself sitting on my phone. And my second time watching it this morning, I was like, okay, I'm going to make sure I don't watch that. And I'm just going to make sure I watch the scene where he's sitting on his bed dying. And next thing I know, I'm looking at my phone again. <laughs> like, I just didn't care. At first, says he has only a cold, but then he keeps getting sicker and sicker. And yet... He, he, he insists on doing his job, even though it's eventually revealed that he is dying. This is because he's experiencing the same thing as people did back on his home world, which we saw in Short Treks, when they get called by the alien race to be cultivated, basically. Yeah, the Vaha Rai. Yeah, and apparently this has been going on for more generations than I realized, such that his species has eventually evolved this life cycle around being culled. And I think it's going to come back. I don't think we'll be seeing other Kelpians. I mean, it's I mean, sure, it's possible. Maybe we'll find out where that alien race is cultivating them to or what they're doing with them. But I don't think we're going to see other Kelpians in Starfleet, at least. Maybe not Starfleet, but I think we're going to see them again. I saw Hypothesis, and and then while we were watching the episode, I can see it possibly. Hypothesis was that this isn't an end-of-life thing. This is a puberty thing, and they didn't know. And that the Ba'ul aren't gathering... The uh, I don't say Baku, uh, the Kelpians to harvest them, but basically it's another uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Another part of their life. Maybe it's actually Kelpians who are beaming them up uh, after the fact. Still, it seems to have had a detrimental effect on the early stage of their life. Oh yeah, yeah. It seems like whatever their their early stage of their life, they live in fear, and then uh, possibly once they get rid of the threat granglia, they no longer have that fear, and they can do other stuff with their life instead of living on fear, living on other feelings. Huh. It's an interesting hypothesis I liked. And then in Saru's death scene, uh, he asked Michael to get a knife he uses to prune his flowers. It's a Kelpian knife. I don't know why that's specified, but uh, a cer- I don't know if it's a ceremonial, but a Kelpian knife he uses to prune his flowers. And he wanted Michael to cut off his threat ganglia for him. And that made me think, like, well, he just used the prune flowers. Maybe this is supposed to be an analogy where pruning off your threat ganglia helps, basically helps you get stronger like pruning flowers does. Right. You cut off the dead parts that the remaining can thrive. Yeah. So I was like, well, here's an obvious connection that I didn't see anyone make online, <laughs> <laughs> even though it was seconds apart. I'm glad that they waited so long to cut off the threat ganglia because Saru seemed to think that losing them would kill him and... Michael reached to do it a couple of times and then kept saying, she can't, I can't, are you sure this is inevitable? And finally, when she went to do it, that's when the threat ganglia fell off. It wasn't clear to me if that was a naturally occurring phenomenon or if it was a reaction to her putting the knife to them. Like if she had done it a minute earlier, would the same result have occurred? Yeah, I don't know. And you know, rewatching the scene, it didn't fit what she said. Like like rewatching it physically, the knife didn't come touch the ganglia but her text when she actually or her speaking when she spoke to him she's like i barely touched him it was a little weird yeah i found the special effects in that scene in that particular moment to be very tng-ish yeah yeah and so even though michael is crying at the loss of her friend you just felt nothing (laughs) no it didn't move me at all now there were times and i hate to bring this up two weeks in a row when i was watching days of our lives and i thought to myself oh 
clearly that child's father is not who they say it is. It's somebody else. And this is a twist that they're going to introduce a month or so from now. And then a month or so later, they didn't bring it up. And I was like, oh my God, I was wrong. And then six months to a year later, they would bring it up. And I was like, oh my gosh, I was right. And so I was watching the scene. I was like, obviously he's not dying. They're not going to write off a main character this soon. But then they kept with it. They stayed and they kept going. And I'm like, oh my God, they killed off Tasha Yar. Maybe they're going to, they really are going to kill off Saru. And I'm like, they would have let us know by now if this was fake. And there was a brief moment where I was like, maybe this really is happening. I do a pretty good job of avoiding online spoilers. Maybe this is one of them. See, I didn't have that reaction at all. <laughs> I don't know if I'm just cold hearted or just used to Star Trek or what, but I just, uh, I was like, okay, they're going to get out of this. They're going to get out of this. They're going to get out of this. I don't think you're cold-hearted so much as I am gullible. (laughs) I like this definition better. Okay, keep going. (laughs) (laughs) There were a couple of repercussions from this scene that I want to talk about. One is maybe not a repercussion so much, but at one point, Burnham said to Saru, we're friends. There will never be judgment between us. And I was like, whoa, 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 back up the trolley. That's not what happened. (laughs) No, it's not. First of all, Saru hated you for leaping over him in the chain of command. Then he hated you for getting the captain killed. Then he hated you for coming on Discovery. Everywhere he goes, you follow and bring danger. Then he hated you for destroying his one chance at peace on that planet with the crystalline spire. And now your best friends, like brother and sister, replacing the sister that Saru left back on Kelpia, and there will never be judgment between you two? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, maybe when you just become friends, you kind of forget all that stuff. I would like to see them. I don't feel like that evolution from frenemies to siblings was clearly conveyed on screen. Um, maybe not, but actually there was something in his quarters that kind of helped bury the hatchet. Remember, Michael gave him Giorgio's telescope, and it was still in his room there. Oh, actually... I forgot that. I completely forgot that. Yeah, so I mean, maybe that was part of their burying the, ha- burying the hatchet thing. That is a very powerful symbol. I, You're right. That would be a major step toward healing old wounds. Nice catch. Oh, thank you. <laughs> this is what I do when I'm not crying over the death of a character. I'm watching the <laughs> background. Well, I mean, I believe you were also the one who pointed out to me that the telescope was on the Shenzhou in the first place. I think it was even like floating when they went back there with no gravity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you have quite the eye for detail, Captain. I, I, thank you. I do that in TV shows. I will often see like the same background character walking by this scene. Every time they change angle, you see the same character walking in different directions. And it just takes me out of it. And you're like, wait a minute, he died five minutes ago. Yeah, right? Or or, <laughs> or when you see uh, someone in a modern day show talking on their cell phone, and if the screen doesn't go black when they hold up to their ear, you know it's not actually on. <laughs> oh my gosh, they need you as some sort of a continuity oh, tester. they do, because it just takes me out. It does. Oh my gosh. <laughs> now, you had said that you didn't understand Burnham's change of heart regarding not Saru, but Spock. At first, she wanted nothing to do with him because she thought she would just drive him farther away. And then at the end, she told Pike, I need to be there for him. I need to let him know I will always be there for him. Yeah, I mean, to me, maybe it was just the connection of the Saru part there. It just, it didn't, I'm glad it's happening. It just didn't, it didn't uh, click with me exactly. Maybe the family thing, friends thing, whatever like that. I don't know. 
Well, didn't Saru specifically tell her, if you and I can heal old wounds, then you and Spock can as well? I want you to promise me that you'll make it right with you two. And she said, I will. Oh, that did happen, didn't it? There you go. I, I kind of forgot the connecting scene there. Maybe maybe because remember I told you the scene was not moving to me at all. And I t- took up my phone. Maybe that's uh, something I missed. I think that was it. I think that is what made her change her heart. Well, then there we go. <laughs> Mystery solved. <laughs> Yay. Now, we have not yet talked about anything that was going on down in engineering, shall we? Yeah, so... <laughs> they got high. <laughs> Everyone got high. It's funny you say that, because I tried to apply a comedic spin to our blog post summaries of each episode of Transporter Lock, and for last week, I wrote that Tilly was tripping on mushrooms. And I was a little premature in that, because boy, this week, everybody was tripping on mushrooms. <laughs> yeah, oh, before everyone gets trippy, Jet Reno comes down. And she's just doing her thing, and everyone's like, who are you? <laughs> I was like, oh, I love it. And she's like, whatever, I'm just here to... The chief engineer sent me here, which brings me up to another weird thing. We've never seen the chief engineer on this ship. You're right. We pointed that out in the first season, and I keep forgetting because we focus so much on specific medical officers, specific engineers, that we forget that we're not actually seeing the chiefs. Kind of like the main character for the entire series of Discovery is not the captain, although we do, of course, see the captain. So it makes me think that somewhere there's still a main engineering, but for whatever reason, a lot of the engineering stuff, even when it's not the spore drive, ends up being Tilly and Stamets in this engineering lab. So I don't know. I think it's just we use the this, this set in season one. It's pretty cool. Let's keep using it. But uh, <laughs> whatever, re- whatever the reason, I, I don't mind it. It's just a little weird. Yeah, you would think that based on precedent in the Star Trek universe, we would get to see the parts of the ship where major decisions are made. And I guess since we have a spore drive on Discovery, we are seeing that, but it's not the day-to-day hub that you would expect. Yeah, like even in the first episode of the season when Tilly was drunk on power, she was talking about reverting the lab to a more traditional engineering uh, workspace. But uh, it was still... It was. It's just still. It's. It's just different from other Star Treks, and I don't mind that at all. It's just. There's. You're just forgetting that. Wait, there's a chief engineer here. We don't. Even, I don't think we even know their name. Yeah, in a way, this is sort of its own lower decks. We're getting to see people on the ship who are not the chiefs of their departments. Yeah, I find it interesting. Not bad. Right. But anyway, what do you think of the relationship between Stamets and Jet? <laughs> it was a hilarious start, and she knows him to a T. <laughs> She's like, oh, yeah, you just sit here and make your jokes. So when they don't go, that you get all mean. (laughs) (laughs) I I think she was kind of the mean one. Oh, she was. More like the, uh, I don't care. I don't need to know your name. I don't need to make a connection with you. I'm just here to work. I'm wondering how much of this is motivated by the fact that her previous ship, the Hiawatha, suffered such trauma. And she probably saw a lot of her crewmates pass away. And how much of it is motivated by the fact that the actor is is a comedian? Yeah, I mean, or it's just how she is, too. A little bit of L3. Right. Yeah. I'm not bad. I'm just written that way. <laughs> oh, speaking of Jet Reno, I discovered that she got to rename the character. From what to what and why? Denise Reno was the original written name, and she asked if she could change it. Like Denise Crosby? The, a reason wasn't given why she asked. She said she, she, said she was given uh, permission to change it. The only other fictional character I've ever known to be named Jet was in, I believe, the video game Tron 2.0, where Bruce Boxleitner's character's son's name is Jet, and he goes into the grid. Oh, that's right. That's right. In Avatar The Last Airbender, there's a character named Jet as well. 
And in all these instances, is it spelled with two T's? Uh, it's never spelled in Avatar. I don't watch with the captions on to see. Oh, but the, this, there's this thing called the internet. I never bothered to look it up. Sure. I didn't care enough to know. <laughs> I care, Bree. I care. I want to get people's names right. It's it's one T. Okay. In The Last Airbender. Okay. So now we know. And he's listed as a villain. He's a minor antagonist, sometimes anti-hero. Yes. Antagonist is not necessarily villain. That's true. It's just the person who opposes the main character. Yes. That's right. And the main character can be a villain. Mm-hmm. So the antagonist might be the hero. Right. Ooh. They're the hero in their own story, Ken. Aren't we all? <laughs> I'm the hero in everybody's story. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. Sometimes I think I'm the sidekick in my own story. <laughs> nice. Yes. Yeah, it's kind of terrifying. I'm glad you're amused by it. <laughs> but anyway, back to Star Trek. Right. So shall we talk about Tilly? Uh, yeah. What happened? That mushroom spore that was internally invasive to her in previous episodes has now latched onto her externally. It's st- first, it stays on her arm, and then they decide that they need to be able to talk to the mushroom spore May entity directly. And the only way to do that is with an implant in Tilly's brain. Yeah, this is what got me emotionally. Yeah, I think we all had a very visceral reaction to this. Everybody's locked in this engineering lab. They can't get out. Like, we need to do a thing quick. And Jazz's like, well, I got this drill. (laughs) Yeah, so they drill into Tilly's head. And while they're doing it, they have her sing her favorite song. And she starts singing Major Tom. Like, oh, this is this is (laughs) gut-wrenching. Yeah, I have so many reactions to that. First, that they actually used a drill without anesthesia and not being performed by a medical personnel. How did Stamets know how far to drill? You remember what, what uh, Jet said in the first episode? Uh, medical, Remind me? Uh, she mentioned something how uh, bodies are just in their machine. I, and I read. <laughs> Right, but there's still a level of precision necessary to make sure you don't actually drill the brain. They might not have said it. Like, here, you make sure you go 22 micrometers in. Like, like That's just superfluous text I don't think they needed to say. Yeah, but it's something that was certainly on my mind, in, literally and figuratively. In, original, in TNG era, they would have said, make sure you don't go beyond five meter, millimeters or whatever. And here, they're just like, no, it just gets cut to the chase. These characters know. They're very good at their jobs. They're very good at other people's jobs. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's it. They're good at their jobs, but here they're doing other people's jobs. And anyway, if I were Tilly, I would have been freaking the F out because A, they're using a drill. B, they're not a doctor. Three, brain. Four, she was on um, mushroom spores and not really caring just before. That's true. She was sort of sedated a little bit, but... I did, however, find her choice of song interesting for two reasons. One, as we previously discussed, it is still popular hundreds of years later. And two, this is a song they sang on Carpool Karaoke. Did they? They sure did. (laughs) So a little bit of foreshadowing there. Well, that's cool. Apparently, when they do actual surgery on brains in present day, I've heard that they actually have the patient sing. That way they know if they hit anything bad or not. Oh my god. Yeah, I cannot vouch. I heard this. I cannot vouch for this personally if this is even true, but I've heard this. Like, that's not necessarily a warning sign because a warning is supposed to stop you from doing something bad. If the person stops singing, then you've already done something bad. 
Hypothetically, but I'm not a brain surgeon. <laughs> Nor am I a rocket scientist. <laughs> Have you ever seen the movie Pi? Not the life of Pi, but Pi? No. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but if I recall, the main character knows Pi to so many digits that it can actually be almost weaponized in a way, and people are trying to procure him or obtain him in order to get this information from him. And he decides that the only way to save himself is to eliminate that knowledge from his brain. And so he takes a drill to his brain. Oh, all right. And therefore he no longer knows pie. Interesting. Yeah. And horrifying. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I noticed the blob did a weird thing in this episode. When it emulated Tilly's hand? Yes. Exactly it. What about it? I thought that was weird. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. It made me think like, can this make clones or is it just is it just trying to communicate? And we don't know the answer to that yet. Yeah, it seemed almost empathetic to Tilly. It didn't seem aggressive in that particular scene. It seemed like it was actually trying to reach out to her. Yeah. And yet the entity of May says that it has plans for Tilly. That's not done with her. Uh-huh. I wonder what its long-term goal is. I mean, even after they cut Tilly out of that mushroom carcass, which, by the way, I don't know how it's expanding so much, they somehow still pull Tilly back into the carcass for the next episode. And I don't know what's going on in there. It's possible that it made her just walk in while, while Stamets and May, or excuse me, Stamets and Jet Reno were um, high. But it also must have come up with a way to stop them from just cutting her out again because it was pretty easy oh, yeah. to save her the first time. It brought time. her to the upside down. <laughs> it brought her to the upside down in stranger things the opposite world to our world is the upside down <laughs> oh. a reference i would not have gotten having never seen that show yeah i figured <laughs> but it just made me think of that like oh tilly's in the upside down yeah but I, i'm trying to think about what the spores might want with tilly and yeah why is it using her to communicate instead of just going directly to stamets Hey, I'm guessing that initial spore infection that we saw in season one has something to do with it Maybe it infected her by chance, and now it's just become used to her. Right. You know, it made that initial connection. It doesn't want to start over with somebody new. Yeah. And it might be just, yeah, she was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But it does seem like there is a clear divide between the mycelial world and our prime world. And maybe they're trying to, like, fuse the two so that they can easily traverse the two. I don't know. I Well, the way she said that uh, earlier in the episode, May Blob thing said that... um. They're hurting. Discovery is hurting their environment, or the jumping basically is hurting them. So there, we kind of get our potential. Why isn't this used in the future? Because it's hurting this other race. But Stamets said something that got me here wondering. He said, "I know better. I knew better." In response to Discovery was hurting them. It's almost as if he knew that these people were there and ignoring it. I totally missed that. Why would he say, "I know better. I knew better"? Does he mean that he knows better now? But then he says it in past tense as well. Oh, I missed that. Yeah, I did too the first time. I watched it the second time. Like, did he know that this is... Or did he at least know about the creatures and said nothing? Or did he know something was up? But he did seem surprised that Discovery was hurting or the jumping. But he, or maybe... But I don't know. The wording... Like, they, they put it in the script for a reason. It makes me wonder how much he knew. Maybe he didn't know it was hurting them, but he knew about them. Well, we do know that he saw living creatures on the other side. We don't know what he saw the last time they jumped. And also, that jump was to the planet with the church on it, New Eden. We never actually saw them jump back, but we can assume that they did that too. Yeah. 
So there have been a couple of jumps where Stamets has been refusing to discuss what he saw on the other side. So we don't know what that might be. Uh, the refusing to discuss, though, looked like personal pain, not causing others pain. I agree. At least of the context. I agree, but there is some wiggle room there. Yeah. It also seems that he didn't need a lot of convincing. Like in the TNG Season 7 episode, Force of Nature, where they find out that warp drives are harming subspace, that took a lot of convincing. Kind of like our own real world with climate change. Mm -hmm. But here, Stamos was like, now that we know, we'll stop doing it. It was, you know, full stop. He accepts what this seemingly malevolent entity has to say. Yeah. Uh, I mean, so maybe he does know more. Or now maybe it makes some information he already had more clear. Yeah, there's definitely more to be revealed about this integration between Discovery and the mycelial network, between Tilly and the individual spore that has somehow attained consciousness. And by the way, I'm still confused by where May ends and Tilly begins. Not even in this episode, but in the previous one, because Burnham had said... We know that you're not going crazy because May didn't know what crying was. Mm -hmm. But this May entity, nonetheless, had access to all these other memories about how Tilly works and how humans work. But she omitted that one fact about tear ducts. It just seems very hit or miss about what the spore knows and doesn't. I mean, maybe it doesn't know anything about feelings, but it knows about personal experiences. I guess maybe we'll get more answers when we go back to the upside down. I mean, that's possible. There, I. Also, I'm not a brain surgeon and don't know how the brain works, but I but I seem to recall that there is perhaps a divide between facts and emotions and that those are stored in different parts of the brain. So, I, I mean, still, the fact that May existed is a fact, but I, I, that's a personal memory as opposed to something that you learn in a textbook. Yeah. I don't know. No, no. I, I, I think, it, again, like with the series, maybe we just haven't gotten enough information yet, or it's one of those things that they just like write off as, please accept this as we display it because... Otherwise, it falls apart. It just seems a little hand-wavy, like, oh, hey, look over here, and don't think too hard about it. It's really just a TV show, and you should all just relax. Yeah, I know, it's unfortunate. I mean, it does happen in TV shows, and Star Trek's usually pretty good about that, so we might still get some answers. We just have to take it for what it is now. Right, but Star Trek is the kind of show that, by its very nature, encourages you to think or even overthink about these things. It's funny. It's actually, it encourages that, but it's also hand-wavy. We got to do the... The players of churns, you got to do this and then do that and just infect it with chronotons. And there you go. And like, that's the hand wavy part. We accept it as this is a thing. <laughs> so it does both. Sure. They do rely on a lot on, of technobabble. But for example, if they were using technobabble or there were things that were factually inconsistent or which didn't make sense on Mystery Science Theater 3000, nobody would care. Right, right. So they're sort of cursed by their own nature in a way i mean discovery's been pretty good about not using techno babble for the most part it's maybe it's an intentional attempt to keep away from that oh speaking of star trek generally using techno babble that reminds me that this episode was in a way similar to the second episode of this season where i felt it was a little bit like traditional star trek they were encountering a space anomaly of the week and i don't mean that as a criticism either yeah space anomaly of the week somehow ties into the thing that's going on in our ship yeah I mean, Burnham had said that Discovery's original mission is a science vessel, and I felt like we got to see some of that this week. It wasn't the first time that we've encountered this sort of a space anomaly that dumps hundreds of thousands of years of data into our computers that scientists will spend generations going through. I mean, we've seen that on TNG, I believe, although I can't cite the specific episode right now. And we've also seen 
oh, we just need to lower our shields and let the thing do its thing and we'll be fine. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that there weren't original takes here. And I like the overall way that they did something scientific and explorative in this episode. Yeah, absolutely. It was, I really enjoyed the episode, despite my not having feelings for Saru not dying. Um, <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed the episode. I had fun with it. And why was it called an obble for Karen? Well, I, I sent you the link because I had to look it up too. And one, we both had the pronunciation wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it is not an obel for Sharon. No, um, but that's the, was it coin you put in a deceased person's mouth, if I recall correctly? No, it's been a few days. Yeah, so that when Karen, the ferryman who brings you across the river, sticks to Hades, that is basically your payment. You're sending the dead to Hades with payment to get across the river. It, that's my understanding. Yeah, now that concept I've heard it before, but you put it in their eyes. I've heard of putting coins in somebody's eyes. I wasn't sure if that was for the same purpose or not. That was, maybe I'm mixing two things, but I'd never heard the mouse one until this. But I mean, that's just my not knowing a parts of the world, but not necessarily. I just did a quick Google search and putting coins over the eyes of dead people is apparently a Christian thing. Oh, that would explain why I've seen it more. <laughs> I, I don't have time in this Google search to figure out why they did it, but okay. it would be, it seems like it might be related because this Google search brought me to Quora.com and it does reference the Greek tradition of the obel. Okay. But uh, so I hope the Christians were not sending the dead to Hades. <laughs> so what is the obel in this episode? Uh, I think it was more reference of we just thought to see two deaths uh, going on here. But one of them didn't happen, so hey. Right, one being the sphere, which did die. In a way, neither happened because the legacy lives on. <laughs> That's right. And I think in a way that might be the obble. I think the sphere, by putting data into the ship's computer, that was the obble it was passing on. So that when it goes into the world of the dead, it has something to continue its journey with. Yeah. yeah. Which I would love to see that information come up again somehow. Or how much of Starfleet's technology, I was thinking that when it happened, is from this thing knowing stuff. Right. But we never will. But it's, it's like in Voyager, when humanity's progress... Uh, is tied to Captain What's-His-Butt from the time ship Relativity going back in time, giving them time travel, or giving them technology, which spawned our 90s technological revolution. And it was all, it comes full circle. A paradox. Right, Captain Braxton. And so... <laughs> and then that's, of course, how the Doctor got his hollow emitter, which they conveniently allowed him to keep. Yeah. But what will actually probably happen is that this information will be passed on to some academics back at Starfleet headquarters who will be pouring over it for generations. And yeah, we'll never hear of it again. <laughs> right. And it probably won't be practical, applicable information. It'll just be like Captain Pike was already reviewing that data at the end of the episode about wars that ancient civilizations fought. It'll probably just be more factual like that. Yeah. Maybe space maps. They might get space maps. Which... Burnham kind of did in a way. He, she found out where Spock was going so that they can continue following him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That whole plot. They kind of. Yeah. I can't wait. I think we're getting close to Spock happening. I think so. We still didn't see another red pulsar in this episode, which is fine because they have a limited number to go through and they don't want to burn them all in the first half of the season. But there is something else we saw in this episode, which we haven't yet discussed. Number one. Because I love number one. We only got her for a few moments, but I loved her character. I love that she was giving a classic hairstyle similar to what would have been popular in that time period in the 60s when her character was created. Oh my God, she was so cool. 
<laughs> and that was like two minutes she was on, if even that. I hope we'll be seeing her again. I suspect so. Like, why did you get an actor of that caliber if you're only going to use her for a few seconds? Is this an actor I should be familiar with? She was in the X-Men as uh, Mystique, how was it? The Blue Gal? Before Jennifer Lawrence was. Oh, Rebecca Roman Stamus. Yeah. I completely forgot that that's who they cast. You're right. Yeah, so she's worked with Patrick Stewart. That's right. That's right. She. Oh, my gosh. You know what? We tweeted that news when she was cast, and then once she actually came on screen as that character, I didn't recognize her. <laughs> and she doesn't look anything like the character to me. A- anything like Mystique or anything like the original number one? Uh, Mystique. <laughs> Except the skin color. Yes, the skin color would be very different. The oh my gosh. It th- kind of stands out. <laughs> I feel like I need to go rewatch an album for Karen just to see her again. Wow. I mean, thankfully, it's just a few minutes. I love that she goes on the ship and just orders a big, huge burger. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. She has a very healthy diet. I approve of that. Yeah, that was fun. But she she apparently has a lot of connections. We, we can actually get some character building for this character that was only in the pilot episode, essentially, uh, of the original series. She has a lot of connections. People end up owing her favors to get this information, which I think is neat. And there's a lot of this character that all of a sudden that we know, even though we barely see her. So I think it's fun. However, this does introduce a wrinkle into the timeline because... I was previously using her introduction as the touchstone by which to determine whether or not Captain Pike has gone to Talos 4 yet. And I thought that, no, she he has to meet number one first, but she is already his number one. So I'm still not clear on how the star dates align. I haven't looked that up yet. Maybe I will in time for the next week's transporter lock, or maybe this will be revealed as further conversations come up and maybe... Captain Pike says, hey, remember that time we went to Talos 4 and I was in the cage? <laughs> but I don't know. It's still confusing to me. I love these little comments and the little nod to fans. Like, oh, I don't think Enterprise will ever get an engineering who lo- an engineer who loves their ship as much as our ours does. <laughs> <laughs> I know when she said that, I was like, wait a minute. Could they be talking about Scotty? No, because he's not the engineer yet. But at the same time, as to your point, who could possibly love their ship more than Scotty? Well, apparently this Lamets or whatever his name was, I don't remember now, but (laughs) I got a kick out of that. That was such a fun little cheeky nod. Star Trek at its best is when it has little fun cheeky nods that, or when it doesn't take itself seriously while taking itself seriously. Right. Kind of like what Zephram Cochran said, and you're all astronauts on some sort of Star Trek. Yeah. Yeah. I love those moments. I love those moments. It's it's just what makes Star Trek, Star Trek. I also appreciate that the costume designers continue to not shy away from letting Discovery and Enterprise have different uniforms. Yeah. He's like, yep, we changed it. Here you go. Tough. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's better than trying to explain, oh, this is why we have to change it mid-season to be more like what you expect from TOS and blah, blah, blah. It's like, no, Discovery has these uniforms. Enterprise has those uniforms. Deal with it. Yep. I mean, even the first episode, they mentioned, like, oh, these are the new uniforms. So maybe season three, we'll get the new ones. Who knows? Right. And if they don't, I'm okay with that, too, because we've at least seen that they can veer from accepted chronology while still acknowledging it. And there's no inconsistency there. Yep. Yep. I saw a cool picture someone had photoshopped the other day of uh, TOS age Kirk uh, in a Discovery uniform from his time on the USS Farragut. I like that. It looks really good. Anything else before we wrap up this week's episode of Transporter Lock, Captain? No, just more Jet Reno, please. Yes, I'm sure we'll be seeing more of Jet Reno and more of that other woman from the Enterprise who wears a red shirt. Oh, gosh. What was her name again? 
her. Yeah, she just suddenly popped into this briefing that had everybody on the bridge except the captain. It seems like everyone's as surprised as we are to see her. <laughs> I was like, oh yeah, you exist. Right, like, how did you get in here? And also, why are we having a briefing without the captain? Uh, well, no, he mentioned that. He's like, I'm late for a meeting. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. he shouldn't be late for his own meetings. That's just bad form. Right. Oh, what's kind of cool, number one gives him a huge oversized notepad, a future space notepad like they used to have in the original series. Yeah, kind of like a, isn't the acronym P-A-D-D? They're actually called PADS. Oh, yeah. A personal access display device. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Thanks, Star Trek. Thanks for overcomplicating this. <laughs> right. Thanks for inventing iPads 300 years late. Good job. <laughs> anyway, I think that's it for this week's Transporter Lock. We will, of course, be back this week and every week, except, of course, I'm sorry for being late with this last week's episode. I was traveling while the show aired, and then I got back just in time for the Superb Owl, which I believe you were engaging with, Captain. Yeah, and no one wants to trust me with editing anything out of you. It's more than two minutes long. <laughs> so all those things combine to make a slight delay, but we should be back on track from here on out until, of course, future travels. I do see some travel coming up next month. And, of course, you and I together will be watching Star Trek Discovery in person for the first time ever when we are attending PAX East in Boston next month. Hell yeah. That's going to be super exciting. Mm -hmm. I can't wait. All right. In the meantime, stay tuned for more Discovery and more Transfer Lock. What do you got to say to that, Captain? Hit it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at TransporterLock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. When doesn't Captain Kirk look good? Um, when he talks on Twitter.